Scripture reading this morning will be from the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. I'll be reading this morning from the New International Version. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity, to let the world know that you sent me, and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Good morning. As I was um, getting ready this morning and preparing and thinking, I was wondering, are the shoemakers going to be here this week? I knew Nick was graduating yesterday. Congratulations, Nick. Um, But then I remembered it's Potluck Sunday, and Nick would probably skip walking in graduation if it meant he was going to miss Potluck. So I knew that they were going to be here today, but glad to see them here and glad to see uh, all of those who are visiting with us as well. Uh, Last week, uh, we covered why we believe in the church. The church that that Jesus spoke of in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, when he said that he would build his church based on the rock, the foundation of belief and faith that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, throughout this sermon series, we have covered uh, the core beliefs that one must hold to to be added to his church, along with other beliefs that come as part of that. And it all begins with a belief in God. One must first believe that God exists and are willing to seek a relationship with Him. But how can one know how to do that? How can one know that, A, they need a relationship with Him, and then how do they know how to make that relationship? How can they develop faith? Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. The Word of Christ is held within the Bible. So one must have a belief in the Bible that it is the inspired Word of God in whom they believe, and that that inspired Word is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 through 17. Now the Bible, from Old Testament to New Testament, teaches that a Savior will come. It then tells us about the life of the Savior, who He was, what His teachings were, what He did, how He loved, how He died, how He was raised from the grave, and how He saves. Things that build up a belief in Jesus Christ being the Son of God. And that's taught to us through the Gospel of Jesus. The Bible also tells us of the resurrection, an important element of the Gospel of Christ that establishes the hope of eternal life. Victory over death, that's what it represents. The Bible also teaches us that he's coming back and to memorialize Christ's death, burial, and resurrection each Sunday as we, uh, as we partake of the Lord's Supper and we proclaim those things until he comes again. All of those things require a prerequisite of belief in the Bible being the inspired word of God because that's where we learn to do these things. So we need to believe that the Bible is the Word of God, and we need to believe in the author who is God. So when one has come to belief in those things, the next thing that the Bible teaches 
is not only the facts that we need to believe in, but also commandments that need to be obeyed. And baptism, which now saves you, is one of them. This is not a removal of dirt from the body, but it is an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Salvation through Christ comes through obedience to Him. And Christ says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Mark chapter 16, verse 16. When one is baptized into Christ, according to what Scripture authorizes, they are then added to His church, His kingdom, as were the 3,000 plus souls on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So as we covered last week, Christ said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, that He would build His church on the rock of faith in Him being the Son of God. And that rock is the foundation of our faith and our obedience to His commands proves that. When Jesus said that He would build His church, it was singular. He said, I will build my church. It was not, I will build my churches. I will not build my denominations. I will not build multiple different churches that believe different things about me. He says, I will, I will build my church. In the scripture that we just heard read in John chapter 17, as Jesus was praying, He continually emphasized a singularity, a unity of those who believe. Paul exhorts the church in Corinthians there that there should be no divisions among the church in Corinth, and by inference, everywhere. So today, as we close out our series on why we believe, I want to talk about why we believe, or why we should believe, in one church, in the one church the church that was established in the Bible. And that as we understand the church in the New Testament to not refer to a building or a singular congregation, but the whole body of believers who have believed and obeyed the gospel of Christ, both now and in the past and in the future. And they have done so according to what God has authorized in His Word and not by man-made traditions or beliefs or opinions. And it is those latter things Man-made traditions, beliefs, and opinions, those are the things that make up denominations. It is what, it's what causes division. It's what causes separation. It's what has separated the church that was established on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And in order to help us understand the importance of believing in the one church established and authorized in the Bible, I want to first define what denominationalism is and then define why the Bible does not support these divisions. Now, this belief is often referred to as undenominational, undenominationalism. Um, and whenever you type that up, you get the little red squiggly line because the dictionary says that's not a word. It is a word. But it's also a very unpopular belief. And it's unpopular because it means that somebody's wrong. And no one likes to be told they're wrong. But this is a belief that I believe is supported completely by Scripture. So I first want to look at the definition of the term used outside of religion. It's what we typically do when we look to the Greek words and how they're used outside of Christianity, outside of faith, to determine their translation, to determine their meaning. For example, baptize. The word baptize in the original Greek means to immerse or to submerge. But man has assigned their own definitions to that, and they have changed the definition. Now, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, the word denomination outside of religion means the action of naming or classifying something, or more simply, a name or designation. 
So how is this name or designation established? Well, it's established by determining how or, how or what separates it from other things. So, for example, in terms of money, a $5 bill is a different denomination from a $10 bill because it both looks different and it holds a different value. Now, the value, at least in U.S. currency, is not determined based on the materials that the bill is made of, but rather what images or numbers are on it. It merely represents a value, but is, is in, it, in itself not worth very much, when, which when you really think about it too much, which I did while writing this out, it's a little disheartening. It's a little scary when you think about that, that our money is not money like it used to be. It used to be you paid silver, and silver was worth something, and now we're paying with paper that's technically not really worth a whole lot at all. I digress. In terms, of, in terms of religion, a denomination is defined this way by the Cambridge Dictionary. A religious group whose beliefs differ in some ways from other groups in the same religion. Notice the words that I bolded there. Differing beliefs. Is the Bible intended to be believed differently? Is our belief in God, the Bible, Jesus, His gospel, His resurrection, His death, His burial, His future return, the commandments that He gave that we must obey, all of these things, are these given by God in order to be believed differently? Or are they given to be believed as God desires them to be believed? 1 Corinthians chapter 1 addresses this, and we're going to start there once we finish defining denominations. So go ahead and turn over there to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And while you're turning there, I'm going to go over a few other definitions, and you're going to start to see a shift in definition a little bit. And it shapes what is commonly accepted as a denomination today. Merriam-Webster defines denomination as a religious organization whose congregations are united in their adherence to its beliefs and practices. This is not the unity that the Bible calls for. The Bible, Christ, desired singularity of the church, unity of his church, not unity of man-established and ruled congregations. It is a unity of all who believe according to his word. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4-6, through 6, Paul wrote, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Again, we see the same singularity, the number one being used multiple times by Paul, just as we saw from Christ in John chapter 17. Another definition from the American Heritage Dictionary. A large group of religious congregations united under a common faith and name, usually organized under a single administrative and legal hierarchy. Christ's church that he purchased with his blood, that he built... It is ruled over by Him. He is the authority. The autonomous nature of the congregations of His church that we find within the Bible speaks to that authority, or as the definition states, administrative and legal hierarchy that is laid out in the Bible. Now you'll notice that these definitions don't refer to the Bible being this single authority or hierarchy. And hierarchy is defined as a system or organization in which people or groups are ranked one above the other according to status or authority. That is not supported or authorized in Scripture in any way. In fact, Scripture often decries that. Christ is the head of the church. The elders are appointed 
to oversee the local church according to Scripture. There is no hierarchy. There is no, I'm better than you because of this. That's what's authorized in God's Word. And we're going to look more closely at that in a little bit. And lastly, we're going to go back to the Oxford English Dictionary, because apparently they're the authority on words and stuff. I'm not a wordologist, but that's what people say. Their definition of denomination in the religious sense is a recognized autonomous branch of the Christian church or a branch of any religion. Now, people usually look at that definition and say, yeah, yeah, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He's talking about all the different churches, all the different denominations. That's not what Jesus was talking about. In that illustration, Christ the vine is the church, and as branches, we too are a part of that church working to help grow the vine while pulling our nourishment from the vine itself. A branch is part of the whole tree. It is not separate and apart from it. And that's what denominations are. They are separations, differentiations from the beliefs held within the scriptures. It is a, if you want to call it a branch from the vine, then it is a branch that has been broken off of the vine and now has no source of nourishment. It's dead. These differentiations are established not based in Scripture, but by man. And as you look at the history, and we're going to look at that in a little bit, of how these churches and these denominations have broken off and, and started their own religions and own faiths, every time it's caused by man. Not because of something in Scripture, but because of something man wanted. Jesus said to the Pharisees and scribes that challenged him in Mark chapter 7, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Jesus decries and admonishes basing faith on the traditions of men. Traditions that are centralized and controlled by men and not the word of God. It is not man's place to add to or remove from the word, uh, from the word of God. Jesus says this as he warns, he warns about this in Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 through 19, as the scriptures conclude. This is the end of the Bible. He says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So with that fresh in mind, here are some examples of denominations that exist today. Now this is not an exhaustive list, but according to the definitions of denominations, these are a few. And we're going to start with the Catholic Church. This denomination is probably the most commonly known, as it is the most popular around the world, especially in our area here in Cincinnati. So this denomination is made up of many different churches, individually led by priests who submit to a hierarchy of authority, going from the local to national, ultimately up to the international level, submitting to the authority of the Pope in Rome. Well, I'm not going to make this a sermon against the Catholic Church. I will simply state at this point that the fact, uh, the fact that there is zero support for a Pope or this sort of organization within the Bible. 
looking at how much the Catholic Church has changed and shifted their views on scriptural and moral beliefs and, and issues, it should be very clear how man-made and man-centered that that, do, that denomination is. And we're going to see some more of these things as we look into Scripture here in a little bit. Next, let's talk about the Eastern Orthodox Church. It's another very popular uh, faith, uh, and the church up the street here is part of that. The Eastern Orthodox Church is made up of 13 self-governing bodies that are divided based on the nation that they originate from. So you've likely heard of the Greek Orthodox. Our neighbors up the street are of the Russian Orthodoxy. And they submit to the authority of the Patriarch of Moscow, which is basically their Pope. Now this denomination has divided themselves as well over the years, splitting from a Pope-like Patriarch of Constantinople, to whom all the, nation, uh, who, all the national Patriarchs once submitted to. So the Pope, or, sorry, the Patriarch of Moscow would submit to the authority, ultimate authority of the Patriarch of Constantinople. But now it is well believed and well stated throughout the Orthodox Church that whatever region uh, that they are from, that nation-specific Patriarch is the highest authority in the Orthodox Church. So this denomination is separated by region, nationality, race, etc., which goes against the scripture in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free, no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Dividing a faith based on where one comes from is anti-scriptural. And we'll talk more about that in a few minutes as well. The Church of England. I always like to use this reference as a history buff. Um, I've, I've studied and read a lot about the establishment of the Church of England. Um, but it is, uh, it is a parent, if you will, of the Anglican churches. And this denomination split off from the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century when the King of England, uh, Henry VIII, was not very happy because he was not awarded an annulment to his marriage from Catherine so that he could marry Anne Boleyn, whom he was having an affair with. So he created a new religion, separate but very similar to the Catholic religion with some Protestant and Lutheran doctrines uh, peppered in there so that he could do what he wanted. This is probably the clearest definition of a man-made religion that you can see. Additionally, whoever is the queen or king of England is considered the supreme governor of the Church of England. Another thing we don't see in Scripture. But uh, although the monarch's authority over the Church of England is largely ceremonial, the position is still very relevant to the Church, and it is mostly observed in a symbolic capacity. The Supreme Governor formally appoints high-ranking members of the Church on the advice of the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, who is, of course, advised by Church leaders. Again, zero support for this practice is found in Scripture. And finally, the Lutheran Church. Our neighbors across the street. This denomination is also a break-off from the Catholic Church, which happened in the 1500s. This denomination is denominated even more internally with 40 different denominations in North America alone. These are called synods, which is defined as an assembly of the clergy and sometimes also the laity and a diocese or other divisions of a particular church. A lot of big words there, but the key word is division. A religion established from a division is itself divided. And I've yet to hear reasons or scriptural backing for that to be acceptable. When presented with, let there be no divisions among you, the argument usually stops. Because they can't get past that. There is the, the religion itself was created by a division, and they are themselves divided. 
In all of these denominations, there are many who claim to be a part of a denomination that do not adhere to their denominational uh, principles or interests. But I would argue that by claiming membership to a denomination, they are advocating and approving of separation or division of what Christ intended to be one. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 6, Jesus, uh, when he was speaking on divorce, says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now he was talking about marriage and divorce in that, in that uh, verse. And Paul compares Christ and his church to a marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. And if we are united to Christ in baptism, as Scripture says, and that union is completed as a powerful working of God, as Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, then this saying by Christ, by comparison, also applies to His church. Whatsoever God has joined together, let not man separate. Let not man divide. Let not man denominate. In all of these cases that we see here, and there are many others, again, this is not an exhaustive list, but man has made the division. Look at this chart that depicts the history of the New Testament church, Christ church, that was established on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 until today. Acts chapter 2 is over there, probably behind the tree, and today is over here. Now the green line along the top indicates the church that was established on the day of Pentecost from, the day, uh, from that day until today, and all the divisions that have happened since then. And the first that you can see over there, the first happened in A.D. Uh, 325 when the Council of Nicaea met under the direction of Roman Emperor Constantine I. And for political and religious reasons, an authoritative hierarchy and the Catholic denomination was established. It's very similar to how the Church of England was established. A ruler of an empire or a ruler of a kingdom desired for organization. They desired a say. They desired a part of the church. And from there, several more denominations would break off from the Catholic denomination, and some of which, of course, we've already talked about. So if you'd like to see this full chart another time, I know it's probably not very easy to see back there. I'm standing right next to it, and it's not easy to see. Let me know, and I'll get you a link for it. Uh, In fact, if you go to our Facebook page, I posted a version of it on our Facebook page last night. But if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, but is it really that bad? Are denominations really that bad if they're well-intentioned, if they're sincere? Would you allow a sincere and well-intentioned man who claimed to be a doctor complete an operation on you without the truth or the facts that surround your condition? Or what if they knew the facts of your condition but decided to ignore them going off what they believed or what they felt? Now, I hope most of you would answer that question, no. And if that is your answer, then why would you allow sincere and well-intentioned men who claim belief in God and Christ but deny the truth, deny the facts that are held in Scripture that pertain to your eternal life? This is not apples and oranges. And it's not just fancy wordplay. It's a serious question that I hope encourages you to dive into the Scriptures to find answers so that you can possibly even bring these truths to those who may believe these things, uh, the things that they believe in denominational teachings are are fact and truth. So am I saying that one cannot serve Christ faithfully while participating in one of these religious divisions? Bold statement alert, yes, I am saying that. I do believe that. And I believe that Christ 
taught as much in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, when he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That verse, of course, continues on to say, Well, well Lord, Lord, we did all of these things in your name. We, we did this in your name. We were sincere. We were well-intentioned. But he said, I didn't know. I never knew you. Because they didn't obey the will of his Father. And the will of the Father is held in His inspired Word. If one reads it, but still ignores the commands, then how are they doing the will of God while knowingly ignoring Paul's admonition in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? And if you're there, let's look down at verse, uh, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each, of you, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized into the name of, the, into the name of Paul? There is to be no division amongst believers. We do not identify ourselves by any other means except of Christ, a Christian, not a Baptist, not a Lutheran, not a Catholic, but a Christian. Notice in verse 12, Paul decries those who say, I follow Cephas. Who is Cephas? That's Peter. Peter, who is claimed to be the first bishop of Rome, a.k.a. the Pope. Peter, whom the Catholic faith claimed to follow, who they claim started the Catholic Church. But Scripture specifically points out that that division is wrong. There is no scriptural support for local churches being divided up into various denominational bodies. There is not one denomination who can look at Scripture, and they can find a Scripture or go to the Bible and say, you look, see that verse right there? That's our church. That's our denomination. Or you see this verse? That details why it's okay for us to have different beliefs. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 5. Churches described in Scripture on the local level are described as independent, self-governing bodies. That were, uh, they were organized really only on the local level. Elders, also known as pastors or bishops or overseers or shepherds or presbyters, etc. They were to be appointed to oversee only the congregation of which they met with. They were not to gather together and dictate direction by popular vote that would then be enforced to all other congregations. Look at what Peter says here in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1-4. through 4. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples of the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Peter appeals to his fellow elders how to shepherd the flock, noting that the chief shepherd, which refers to Christ, not a pope, not a bishop, not an archbishop, but Christ would be returning someday. And Paul reveals in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, that elders were put in place so as to establish order in the form of overseers. The only authority 
Above the local church and elders was Christ and his apostles, which Peter was. And if you notice, in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter uses that authority as he refers to himself as both a fellow elder and a witness to Christ's sufferings, basically elder and apostle. But that was it. When the apostles died, that was it. They weren't replaced with new apostles. They weren't replaced with, with new authoritative figures. The Scripture became the authority. Their writings, the work of the Holy Spirit, that is today the standard. No single person has the authority, nor do gatherings of men and or women have the authority to dictate rule changes, doctrinal changes, etc. None of those can replace the Word of God, which is now our authority. Let no man add to or remove from. In vain do they worship me, teaching... uh, teaching his doctrine the traditions of men. The doctrine of the one church is found only in the Bible. Why else would Paul write this to the Romans in chapter 16, verse 17? I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Or Paul again in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3, where he wrote, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Or how about Paul again in the letter to the Galatians as he opens up the letter in verse 8 of chapter 1. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. These are all clear examples that denominationalism goes against Scripture. I had a discussion with someone who subscribed to the Eastern Orthodox line of thinking and said, uh, she said, well, well, we believe in both the Scripture and tradition. Actually, she said tradition and Scripture. The order, was, the, the order was clear. She said it a number of times. But when I presented her with Christ's teaching that I just quoted, the conversation ended abruptly with, a, well, we'll have to agree to disagree. God's inspired word is the true test of false doctrines that exist today. Consider the Apostle John's words in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. He said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Put them and their teachings to the test. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter, one, or, uh, chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And here, Paul is again addressing the divisions within the church. And he appeals to their carnality, as the New King James puts it. But here in chapter 3, listen to how Paul says uh, that their divisiveness is a symptom of spiritual immaturity and their focus on the flesh or being human and not on the spiritual. Look at verse 1. But I, brothers, cannot address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you were not yet ready. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, you are not of the flesh, and have uh, are you not of the flesh, and behaving only in a human human way? For when one says, "I follow Paul," and another, "I follow Apollos," are you not merely being human? Turn over to uh, Ephesians chapter four. And as followers of Christ, we are expected to live a life different from that of fleshly, regular humans. Those who do not know Christ is what I'm referring to. Listen to Paul's teaching starting in verse 17 of Ephesians chapter 4. 
Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and you were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The Christian life is not to be one that is focused on the flesh, but rather the things of righteousness. We spoke about that a little bit in our class this morning. I talk about it in our bulletin note this week as well. But denominationalism, division, is focused on what man wants and not what God wants. That's the definition of focusing on the flesh. And it goes against the work of Christ on the cross. Turn back a few chapters to Ephesians chapter 2. And listen to Paul's explanation of how the cross destroys the division between Jew and Gentile and how this also applies to the the, uh, divisions that exist today. Look down at verse uh, 14 of Ephesians chapter 2. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. There it is, one so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God." built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. By having division, hostility, and and denominations between those claiming Christ is in direct opposition of this work that he did on the cross to tear down those walls of hostility. He didn't die for our sins so that we could then go on and create our own faith, our own religions, and ignore everybody else. He died so that all who believe would be of one body, His body, His church. And of course, this all hurts the proper spread of the gospel. Denominational teachings and the divisions that exist among all of the Christian religions is one of the most commonly used arguments of uh, atheists and agnostics as to why they don't believe in God. Why should I believe in God? Look at all the strife. Look at all the divisions. Non-Christian faiths such as Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, etc., they use this divisiveness that exists in Christianity to ask the question, why should we believe in Christ? If this is what Christ intended, if this is what Christ did to cause all of this strife, all of this division, why should we follow him? That doesn't make That doesn't make sense. Should we really be that surprised when folks are slow to accept the gospel truth coming from such a divided landscape? Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, 
They use this religious division to create their own religions, banking on the fact that this divisiveness of others would build their numbers. It did, but of course they just became another denomination. But at the Word of God and the teaching that I've presented today from the Scripture is not enough. Here are some quotes from some famous folks about how denominationalism is wrong. Let's start first with Martin Luther, the founder of the Lutheran Church. I ask that men make no reference to my name and call themselves not Lutherans, but Christians. What is Luther? My doctrine, I am sure, is not mine, nor have I been crucified for anyone. And he goes on, he says, St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 would not allow Christians to call themselves Pauline or Petrine, but Christian. How then should I, poor, foul carcass that I am, come to have men, give, uh, have men give to the children of Christ a name derived from my worthless name? No, no, my dear friends, let us abolish all party names and call ourselves Christians after him whose doctrine we have. How about this from the great Reformation leader John Wesley, whose followers are known as the Methodists or Wesleyans? Would to God that all party names and unscriptural phrases and forms which have divided the Christian world were forgot, and that the very name Methodist might never be mentioned more, but be buried in eternal oblivion. And lastly, from Charles Spurgeon, widely uh, regarded as one of the greatest and well-known Baptist preachers who ever lived. And he said, I look forward with pleasure to the day when there will not be a Baptist living. I hope that the Baptist name will soon perish, but let Christ's name last forever. All of these men, considered theologians, and who many have followed, all of which said the same as we've been covering today, but they've been ignored. It's going to continue. The truth exists in the Scriptures, but people will still ignore it. There should be nothing that divides Christ's body. Nothing. Denominationalism is wrong because it is unscriptural. It goes against the teachings of Scripture, and it is harmful to the cause of Christ. In our attempt to bring the gospel of Christ to the world, we will, and many of us have likely already faced, the barriers that are established by denominationalism. And we should strive to educate ourselves in what the Scripture teaches and live according to it. May we be the church Christ established and strive daily to break the divisions that have separated man from God. For that which divides us from God is sin. It is lawlessness. It is disobedience. And that's what denominationalism is. And the only thing that can reconcile us to Him is Jesus Christ. By believing in Him, by repenting of your sins, by confessing your faith in Him, in obeying His command to be baptized into His death, burial, and resurrection... It is in those waters of baptism that the powerful working of God unites you to Christ and adds you to His church, which, of course, is His kingdom, of which He is ruling over right now at the right hand of God until He returns to bring judgment on the whole world. If you're here this morning and you've not been baptized and added to the church according to what Scripture says, then don't wait. Come forward this morning and make your request known. If we can assist you with that, Uh, or help you study the Word, to come to a better understanding, to pray with you, or if you have any other need that the church can assist you with, won't you come now while we stand and sing?